The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Hey, welcome to Sunday. Let me encourage you to be a note taker. I know I say often to take notes because paper doesn't forget even though you do. So if you got a pen or pencil or maybe you're typing this on a tablet or smartphone or computer, that's great. I also encourage you to follow along in the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you got a Bible with you, that's great. Um, if you got a smartphone with a Bible app, that works as well. So we'll go ahead and jump in. Heather and I got engaged 21 years ago this last week. And um, we got married in August of 1999. Three years later, our daughter Emerson was born. uh, And then Jack was born in 2005. And then Stella in 2007. Hudson was born in 2010. And then we had Wolfgang in 2013 and Millie in 20... Just kidding. No, I'm joking. Okay, let me stop. Hold on. Um, We have four kids, Emerson, Jackson, Stella, and Hudson. And... um, I can't count the number of times that I've referred to my family as a zoo full of kids. In fact, I think I've even used that hashtag on uh, social media before referring to my family. And the reason, you go, why is that? The reason is because there are so many moments in any given week where it feels like chaos, where there's frustration or tension or bickering, where there are members of the family that leave things around the house. Um, dirt gets tracked in from outside constantly. One person loves one meal, another person loves another meal. Um, and every day it seems like somebody gets hurt. It seems like someone clogs a toilet. It seems like someone is, is on a device for far too long. Someone is begging for a pet and someone is trying to stretch out their bedtime again, almost daily. It seems like any one of those things or all of those things are happening. Um, Heather and I set expectations about chores about reading, about time outside, about laundry, and we're constantly having to remind somebody about those guidelines, and it's exhausting. Things often unravel in what I would call our family system. But here's the thing, I think we can all relate. I think that doing life in a family can feel like making your way through a jungle. Um, Whether it's two people just adjusting to the responsibilities and sacrifices of marriage, or it's bringing kids into the mix and constantly playing zone defense, the truth is being a family is not for the faint of heart. You add to that wild pets and bloated schedules and extended family and church family and getting through the ups and downs of swinging on financial vines, and it's a wonder that the family even survives. So what I want to do is discuss how we can do more than Uh, survive but thrive in this blessing that we call family, which is why I want to say this, welcome to the jungle. This is part one in our series called Welcome to the Jungle, and what we're talking about is the family dynamic. Now, what I think is really cool is that there's a story in the New Testament that we can pull from that helps us do this family thing correctly, and it's found in 1 Corinthians. Paul uh, wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, and um, we're going to jump into it. So if you look at, like I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just for a moment here, I'm only going to focus on one sentence. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, the second half of the verse. And yet, or now I will show you the most excellent way. Father, today, 
I pray for all of us, God, whether we're in a church family or we're in a physical relational family or we have extended family, whether we're married or we're single, whether we're kids that are viewing this or we're parents or we're adult kids with older parents, God, whatever the context might be, my prayer as we go through this series, Welcome to the Jungle, is that we can all understand that, hey man, none of our families are perfect. Even our church family isn't perfect, but my prayer today is that we can wrap our heads around what it means to exist within the context of the family that you've given us. Again, relational, immediate family, or the community family, the neighborhood that we're in, or God, the church family that you've gifted to us, help us do and be what you've called us to do and to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, I'm only taking a short portion of a verse right now, and that's intentional. We'll get to more in just a moment here. But why did Paul care to write these words, and now I will show you the most excellent way? Why did it matter so much? And it's because of something interesting that was happening. In fact, this was a church in chaos. It's like a jungle full of animals fighting for shelter and food and dominance. Honestly, it's chaos. It's crazy. And so let's rewind, and what I do is I want to take a look at the whole of this letter in the context of the church at Corinth. And it starts out all the way at the opening of the letter. As Paul writes, he often does this when he's writing a letter. It says this in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. So this is a letter that was written by Paul somewhere between 53 and 56 AD. He probably wrote it from Ephesus. He spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus after he had visited Corinth. And um, he he visited Corinth on his second missionary journey um, around AD 50. And it says in Acts 18 verse 11 that he stayed there 18 months. And so he was there for a year and a half. And if you want to find um, where I'm talking about this, it's out of Acts chapter 18 verses 1 through 17. We kind of have this um, context of Paul in the city of Corinth and, and doing ministry there. So you can check that out. Corinth was actually an incredibly large city um, with a very diverse population because it was on a trade route. In fact, going from north to south, there, there, there was roads that people would travel to get from one area to another, one air body of water actually to another. And so Corinth was in the middle. So you had people on trade routes from all over the place traveling and, and uh, checking out and then end up living sometimes in Corinth. On top of that, um, uh, Corinth itself was originally conquered and destroyed by the Romans back in 146 B.C., And then a hundred years later, they reestablished it as a city and it became a rather dominant city in that time. So when Paul arrived there, it was a cosmopolitan city full of Romans and Greeks and Jews, among many other uh, people from around the Mediterranean. Um, Theologian Gordon Fee puts it this way, and I love this quote, Paul's Corinth was at once um, New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, of the ancient world and the city was in or sorry the church was in many ways a mirror of the city. So to the point here, this is a fair reason why Paul's letter describes so much conflict. In fact, what we have as 16 chapters in this letter um, is is really over and over different avenues of conflict. It starts in, in chapter one where they're complaining about 
uh, their divisions. Paul addresses in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1 that there's divisions among you. And there's this group that says, I follow Paul, and this group, Apollos, and this group. And he's like, well, stop it. Why don't we all just agree that we follow Jesus? And so there was divisions that he addresses right away. And then as he goes through this letter, he, he talks about complaining that his strategy for reaching others was way too simplistic and not, not heady enough. And then he jumps into step relatives that were in weird sexual relationships with each other. And then he talks about lawsuits among believers in the church. And then he addresses the abuse of our bodies and, and marriage and divorce and then involvement in pagan worship through their choice of food that was sacrificed to idols and we should be careful of it or maybe we shouldn't and this kind of stuff. Then he talks about our need to live for others and he addresses spiritual pride within that context. He talks about, listen to this, not getting drunk on communion as some people were actually doing when they used wine in communion. He talks about not hoarding communion so others are left all uh, left out. And then Paul begins to put order to the functioning of the church body as he gets into chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. So he goes through all these complaints and then he says, hey, we're all a body and here's how we need to function. Here's the gifts within the church and here's how we need to function. Now, while the specific issues may be the issues of a city, Paul's response, to be honest, is not a lot different than the mom and dad who cares enough to want a Christ-centered family. When I think about my own family, Heather and I and our kids, um, in our context, you might hear some things like this. Did you really just talk like that? Or you might hear, stop harassing your little brother. Leave some for the rest of us. You can't disown your sister. How's your time with Jesus been lately? Did you do your chore today? Uh, here's why your mom and dad. Here's why your mom and dad have decided not to drink alcohol. And we have a conversation. How's your thought life going, guys? Let's take a few minutes and pray together. Or maybe before you go to sleep, how's your heart doing right now? Paul addresses all kinds of issues going on in the church, and then says this. Let's create some parameters for operating correctly within the context of being together. And then he says, after he creates some parameters, and then he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way, followed by this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud or rude. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 
For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully know even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So let me go back for a second and remind you, Paul deals with multiple different examples of problems within the church at Corinth. And he addresses them, some of them very much head on. He exposes some of the sin that's going on in the church very much so and very directly. And then he says, let's create some parameters. Let's create some guidelines and guardrails so that you can be a healthy church. But listen, in the midst of creating structure, let's never forget that the most excellent way is love. You can't have a bunch of law and regulations and structure without the need for love in the midst of it because it doesn't work. Some of you as, as disciplinarians in your family have created certain structures out of frustration and anger and things aren't working, but there isn't the right amount of love. And so all it becomes about is legalistic rules that people can't live under and, and thrive. It just doesn't work that way. And so Paul, who seems to understand this, says, let's create the structure, but let's make sure at the center of all of our existence together that there's love. Doesn't that sound a lot like being a family? Doesn't it sound like when I say, hey, we create chore lists and we create rules and we create bedtimes and we have certain expectations, but in the midst of all of those things that we've sometimes written down, doesn't it make sense in the midst of it that there's love? That for us to exist well together as family, that there's love? And like I said, this just doesn't apply to your immediate family that you live with. This applies to the neighborhood that you live in or apartment complex that you're a part of or the family that you're related to with grandpas and grandmas and aunts and uncles and stuff like that. This relates to the, the, the church family that God has placed you in. That, that even within our own church, there are certain rules and, and things that we expect of individuals and stuff. At the same time, there ought to be love in the midst of all of it or something is desperately missing. And now I will show you the most excellent way. And he goes into a whole chapter on love. Christ-centered love is the most excellent way. And so when you think about the jungle of relationships, when you think about the twists and turns and craziness and chaos that happens within any relational context, because it's going to happen, you've got to make sure that you're covered, that you're bathed in Christ-centered love. Again, Paul explains the challenges within the church, gives structure, and then says we've got to have love in the midst of all of it, or this isn't going to work the way that it needs to. So what about you? Don't, don't even take 1 Corinthians 13 when you're thinking about this for a second. Don't, don't read it. Don't process it. Don't, don't, don't wait and, and, and go over this later. I want you to think right now, right where you're at, right in this minute. Think about this. What about you? Without reading the words of 1 Corinthians 13 and getting into this series, which we will, on a scale of 1 to 10, how healthy is your family right now? And maybe it's just you and your spouse. Maybe it's you and spouse and you got just a baby at home and you're young. Maybe you got a bunch of kids. Maybe you got a zoo full of kids. Maybe there's all kinds of extended family that, that don't live near you. But even at that, how healthy is your family right now? What does love look like in your relationships? That could be friendships. That could be people that you respect. That can be where you go to work and who you interact with at your workplace. Here's another one. 
Where are, are there weak spots in the relationships that you care about? Where are there weak spots in the relationships that you care about? If you're a mom or dad, how healthy are your relationships with your kids? And, and don't think for a second that means kids in the house that are under 18. That could mean as a parent, you're watching this and you're in your 60s or 70s and your kids are in their 30s or 40s or 50s or something. How healthy are those relationships? And, and maybe you're a kid, even a grown-up kid. How healthy would you say your relationship with your mom and dad is right now? And again, if you're in that category of kid whose parents have passed away, how healthy was the relationship when they were alive? How well do you communicate in your relationships? If you're married, how's your marriage? And again, that's a general question. As we get through this series, we're going to get into some of these more specifically. But in a general sense, how healthy is your marriage? And maybe if you're single, here's a question. How are you becoming someone worth marrying? Throughout this series, we're going to be looking at the whole of 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll break down the examples that Paul offers us and give some tools to help us become Christ-centered members of our related families, of our church families, and of our communities. And so I'm excited to get into this series, part two, three, four, five here down the road. Let me just pause for a second as we kind of land the plane today. Think about attending the most perfect wedding. Maybe you already have. Maybe it was your own wedding. When we got married back in 1999, I think back to my memories and, and I have incredible memories of that day. And it's kind of a blur, but the things I remember, I cherish in my heart. Think about attending the most perfect wedding. The decorations are the perfect color and texture, and they're in all the right places. The outdoor venue is the perfect mix of landscaping. There's trees and there's bushes and there's flower beds and it's just got a great feel to it. Their sky is blue and it's just the right temperature. It's not too warm that you're hot, but it's not too cold that you have goosebumps. The reception area has a dance floor and there's a DJ and there's gorgeous centerpieces on every table. You can smell the food and when you get to the reception, which you're excited about, you know it's going to be amazing food. Now think about the couple getting married. You adore them. They have the perfect story of silliness and fun and whimsy and seriousness and all that stuff. And you even get to be the one that played Cupid for when they met. They're perfect for each other. Think about the ceremony. It's a moving ceremony. It's all the right songs. It's the perfect phrases repeated from the perfect pastor. Just kidding. It's not me, but anyway. Um, uh, repeated from the, the, the pastor. And then 1 Corinthians 13 is read. It's the perfect balance of word picture and truth and poetry ever comprised. And now I will show you the most excellent way. See, those moments at a wedding are meaningful because in that moment, those words mean something. When you say in front of a, another individual you're pledging your life to in the, in the whirlwind of romance and dating and courting and engagement and rings and all that fun and planning for a wedding and you're standing up there in front of everybody and you hear love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, love is not easily angered. It doesn't rejoice with evil, but rejoices in the truth. When you hear all of those phrases and you go through 1 Corinthians 13 during a wedding ceremony, 
It's meaningful because those words mean something. But let me just ask this. What if those words weren't only meant for couples in a wedding? What if they could change the dynamic of your life and transform your relationships for the better? All of them. Let me say this. It starts with you and it starts with me. Living the most excellent way in Christ-centered love. Welcome to the jungle, but God's got a plan that you and I can thrive. I'm excited to get to it, but I'm going to pray for today. Father, again, thank you for what you're doing in our hearts, that we can be the best we can be, that we can live, as Paul says, in the most excellent way, that we value a Christ-centered love, that Paul somehow put the right words together that can help us understand what it looks like, not just at a wedding, not just when everything is so perfect and amazing and everybody believes the words in the moment, but five years down the road when marriage gets tough. 10 years into a career where that we're just bored and tired of it and we just show up to exist, but there's no light in our eyes. That we live where we live and we're tired of living there and our neighbors are this way or that way and we have this attitude. What would it look like to live like Paul says, to live in the most excellent way? Help us work that out through this series. Help us start today in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for taking the time to view today. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.